Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed the perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes! 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 Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. And hello and welcome to From the Diamond. I am Grant McCauley. These are the Kia Studios of Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And we are off and running and really... The Braves have been off and running throughout the month of June and right on into July. They just keep on chugging the best offense in baseball and have the best record in baseball. And let me just go ahead and lay out the whole show here. The most all-stars in baseball as well. The Braves got a lot of great things going on, and we got a lot of things to get into on this week's edition of From the Diamond. As always, I appreciate you making some time to hear about some Braves and baseball with me. And also, if you like the show, want to invite you to connect with it in all kinds of different ways. The first and most obvious is you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Also, find it on the Odyssey app. You can connect with me on social media at Grant McCauley on most platforms, Twitter, Instagram. That's where you can find me. At From the Diamond with an underscore is the show on Twitter. At From the Diamond on Instagram for the show. You can like From the Diamond on Facebook and find all the links to the things I just told you about at FromTheDiamond.com. Putting all that aside, though, as I mentioned, we have a huge show when you think about all the Braves topics that we have to wade our way through. And this has been, I think, over the last just over a month now, one of the best runs that I can think about any Braves team possibly being on. An historic 21-4 and month of June, best winning percentage in a single month in franchise history, uh, best record by any team in baseball in a single month this year. And just continuing to lengthen this lead between the Braves and the rest of the National League East. And how do you do that? Well, you go 21-4 and in the month of June. That helps. Also sweeping the second-place team, the Miami Marlins, right out of town over the course of the weekend in what was three very impressive wins, albeit a little bit different. There was a slugfest in Game 1. There was the onslaught in the first inning in Game 2. And then there was a comeback win in Game 3 as the Braves continue to handle their business head-to-head against the Marlins, who I would not judge them solely by this weekend as far as what they've been doing against the rest of the National League. But the Marlins have not figured out a way to get the Atlanta Braves down and keep them there for the 1-2-3. just hasn't happened. Braves kicked out at 2 and got some big runs off Sandy Alcantara in the middle innings and were able to ride that into yet another victory. First two days of July have looked a lot like the last three-plus weeks of June looked with way more wins and losses for this Braves team. And it's crazy to think about what the the whole complexion of this race looked like when we did start the month of June. Let me flash back and tell you about the second-place New York Mets. And before the phone lines light up, no, I'm not misspeaking. They were at one point in second place, but they lost 15 games in the standings since June the 1st. 15 games in the standings. Now, the Braves going 21-4 and was a big reason why. The Mets being 10 games under 500 over that same stretch uh, would also help lengthen the the, the difference and the uh, pad that you had over a club that was expected to be the Braves' rival, their key rival over the course of this season. I mean, we spent all winter long talking about, well, 
The Mets have spent a lot of money. Did the Braves do enough? Are the Braves good enough to hold off the Mets since they were also a 101-win team last year and they you know, made the moves over the course of the winter? Now, things have just changed and, and gone in a way that maybe we didn't all expect, and we're going to try to unpack what it is that's going on with the Mets. We're going to spend way more time on what's happening with the Braves, but I've got my friend Casey Stern going to join me in the second hour to just try to figure out what it is that has gone wrong for this club because it's not one thing, it's a number of things, but how are they going to get out of it? I think that's a, as good a question as any. And it's a question the Mets have been asking themselves for quite some time. Uh, But for the Braves, fortunately, to move on to more fun topics, they have not had to ask themselves, how do we turn our season around? Because Atlanta, unlike 2022, didn't stumble out of the gates and, you know, wander around in the dark trying to get to 500 for the first two months. No, the Braves got off to an incredible start. And in doing so, they jumped into first place, and they have not wanted to relinquish that uh, over the course of the first half of this season. We played 83 games now. And Atlanta owns the best record in baseball. I think that's something that, you know, if, if I told you over the course of the winter, it's not inconceivable, but you might have thought, okay, well, what exactly has been going on here? Who has been stepping up? I mean, you would assume that Ronald Acuna Jr. is back and at full speed and full strength and playing the best baseball of his life, and I would tell you that you're right about that. And we're going to talk a lot about Ronald Acuna Jr. on this show, as we always do, because he is doing things that nobody's ever done before in a time frame in which, you know, you look at his first half, you kind of wonder, how did he get to these numbers? But you watch him play every night. This guy is affecting the game in just about every single facet. He can take you deep. He can draw a walk. He can steal a base. He's scoring runs. He's got that great arm. I think he makes some good plays in the outfield. They're not all going to be winners. Here to tell you, everybody makes errors. But way more good than bad from Ronald Acuna Jr. in every possible facet of the game might be the undersell of the century. This guy is putting together just an absolutely crazy season. We're going to get into it as the show goes on. The pace that Ronald Acuna Jr. is on. Uh, as the top vote-getter of the All-Star game would tell you, the rest of the world of baseball has taken notice to how good this kid is. And I asked Brian Snitker very simply, I mean, how do you describe what Ronald's doing this year? And he said, look, he's an elite player. He is one of the very best in baseball. And that simple and succinct answer is exactly what you can say about Ronald Acuna Jr. You can wipe away all the questions that you had that may have lingered after he had to kind of grit his way through a season where he didn't look like himself last year. Ronald Acuna Jr. looks better than ever. Uh, But the Braves, though, over this past week, really just continued to do their thing. They swept the Minnesota Twins, the first-place team in the American League Central. That is a first-place team. That is not a great division. The Braves are about to take on the second-place Cleveland Guardians, or depending on how this week is played out, actually, they might be in a tie at the top of the division. But they're going to see the Guardians this week and then wrap things up in the first half with the Tampa Bay Rays, a club that got off to such an incredible winning streak. You might have thought they are going to ride that to best record in baseball the whole year. The Braves have done a pretty good job with their June of catching up to the Rays, and it's been neck and neck for best record in baseball here for a while. But following up that sweep of the Twins was this sweep of the Marlins, which was equally, if not more, impressive when you consider both teams came in with a five-game winning streak. The Braves were separated in the standings by a six-game cushion over the Marlins, and while the Atlanta club, I think, does such a great job of compartmentalizing, focusing on the day, focusing on winning the series, the Marlins... I think they came into Atlanta with at least some sense of urgency. This is a big series in general when you face the first and second place teams in any club. Now, can you get talked into it being as big for the Braves as it was for the Marlins? I'm not so sure that's a narrative. I'm sure it's nothing that the players were thinking about at all. But if you're a Marlins fan, you're feeling like, all right, this is our opportunity to hey, maybe take a series. Maybe start to turn this head-to-head matchup around because the Braves have won six out of seven coming in. And now they've won nine out of ten, and there's only three games left head-to-head between the Braves and the Marlins. But 
I don't think that Miami came in feeling like, okay, well, th- this is where we take over the National League East because we're going to go slay the giant, uh, slay the dragon, I guess, and move right on into that castle. And right out in front of the Marlins is the same thing that was there when they marched into Truist Park and got swept in the series. They still have an opportunity to get into October. Uh, they're a club that has played way more good than bad this year, and their schedule might be a little soft here or there, but we all play the same 29 other teams. Every team does, so they're going to have their chance to make their run in October, and that's still an opportunity that's out there for Miami. But the staggering strength of the Braves lineup has just begun to completely overpower opponents. The first inning runs, like the message that that sends to another club, I don't want to say that you can demoralize another team in one inning, particularly the first inning of a nine-inning game, but when you see the consistency at which the Braves jump out to leads, and not just like a run or two, I mean, they're hanging crooked numbers on the board. These five-run first innings, I mean – You can go weeks between having a five-run first inning. Uh, The Braves seem to just go a couple of days at most, and sometimes they're doing it on back-to-back days, which is just incredible to see. Uh, They've set a Braves record uh, for home runs in a month because they set a National League record for home runs in a month with 61 of those over the course of June. Another incredible stat. Matt Olson has heated up. We know Ronald Acuna Jr.'s MVP case is getting bigger and better by the day, but we all wanted to see Matt Olson be that run producer that would not only just protect Ronald Acuna Jr., but be one of the driving forces in this lineup. And he'd had his moments over the first couple of months, but the last three weeks, my goodness. I mean, this guy is hitting home runs left, right, and center and driving in runs. He's the uh, the National League's RBI leader. He's the National League's home run leader. I did read a report by Justin Toscano of the AJC that he did politely decline the opportunity uh, to be in the home run derby. But let's not bury the lead on what the Braves did Uh, Just on Sunday evening alone, after they picked up their win over the Marlins, five more Braves named to the All-Star team. We already knew Ronald Acuna Jr. was there. Sean Murphy's going to be there. First time for him. And Orlando Arcia, what a story he is. First time for him. He's a starter at shortstop for the National League. With Spencer Strider and Bryce Elder getting their first All-Star nods. And then you throw on top of that, the rest of the Braves infield's going. Austin Riley again. uh, Ozzie Albies for the fourth time. And Matt Olson going to be an All-Star for the Braves. Eight All-Stars. Absolutely incredible. Uh, Just testament to what the Braves have been doing here in the first half. The most all-stars for any team since way back in 2012 when the Rangers also sent eight. But Homer Road, everything's been coming together for this Braves team. They're on pace for a club record 109 victories. That would pass the the 1998 team with 106. And this comes off of a 101-win season last year. It's just incredible. We've got so much more to talk about with this Braves club, and when we come back, we will jump into this week in Braves baseball. We'll size up all the big performances, all the big stats, all the things you need to know. We'll talk all-stars. We'll do it next. I'm from the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Taking a look around the league with more of our From the Diamond with Grant McCauley. From the Diamond is brought to you by Window Nation. Get two windows free with every two you buy and pay nothing for two years on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. This is from the Diamond. Grant McCauley with you from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Appreciate you spending part of your Sunday evening with me as we wrap things up after yet another profitable weekend. I've been saying this a lot, it feels like, on this show. Another profitable week of Braves baseball for this team that continues to take advantage of great offense, great pitching, and winning baseball games. And when you do that, you do it enough. You get yourself to where you want to be and uh, for the Braves where their big goal is, and that, of course, is October But before we get to all that, it's good to have a little bit of fun along the ride, and we've certainly had that in June and here in the first couple of days of July. The Braves just continue to be one of, if not the best clubs in baseball. That's been pretty apparent for a while now. 
and they officially took over best record in the sport with their sweep of the Marlins. But when we look at what's ahead of us here in the not-too-distant future, it's the All-Star Game, the Midsummer Classic. And this is something that you know, I know that folks may have different opinions about the fan voting. I think it's still a nice component to have the fans voting in all of this. I also think it's pretty cool that the player vote gets to decide you know, the reserves and the guys who are going to be filling out that squad. And it's nice to kind of have this uh, thought process shared a little bit. But the fan vote, I do think, is still something that is worth um, pursuing because this is an exhibition ultimately. But to have the best players in the sport on the field for a day or for a weekend and for some festivities, I'm all about that. And I think baseball wants to showcase its stars. And there's some considerable star power that's going to be rolling into Seattle. But no team is going to be bringing more stars and all-stars than are the Atlanta Braves, who have not one, not two, not three. I'm going to stop. They have eight all-stars which is the most for any club since 2012. I got the question on Twitter already earlier. Most all-stars by a single team, and I believe from my research, 1939 New York Yankees. They had a 10th that was Lou Gehrig, who had retired earlier that year and was there as the honorary captain, but nine active all-stars on a roster. Can't imagine we've seen that too terribly many times. It was a few years ago when the Royals got a bunch of starters voted in. I believe in the mid-50s, the Reds had a similar uh, happening like that. And the commissioner stepped in and actually put a couple of other players, you know, that Willie Mays guy and that Hank Aaron guy, put them in the starting lineup. But otherwise, there have been some teams that have brought a pretty big all-star contingent, but the Atlanta Braves should be feeling pretty good about the group that they are sending to Seattle. It's headlined by Ronald Acuna Jr., the top vote-getter in the National League and in all of baseball. As he continues to just do Ronald Acuna Jr. things, you've got a couple of first-timers joining him in the starting lineup. Orlando Arcia, the shortstop for the National League. You could have given me... Ten guesses for crazy, unlikely stories that will be coming out of spring training that we're going to be talking about in July heading into the All-Star game. Or just ask me, hey, who do you think is going to make the All-Star game for the Braves? And I don't think I would have ever turned in a draft that had Orlando Arcia on it because I didn't know he was going to be the starting shortstop when the Braves reported for spring training. But here he is, the starter for the National League in the All-Star game. What a story that is. Sean Murphy having a career year. First All-Star appearance for him as well. Comes over in that big trade. With the Oakland Athletics over the course of the offseason, he's hitting 295, just behind Orlando Arcia's cool 296 batting average. But 14 homers and 48 runs knocked in for Sean Murphy. On basing near 400, slugging nearly 560, and put it together, his 949 OPS is the best of all catchers in baseball. So the stats back this thing up. He's second in homers and RBI among catchers in all of Major League Baseball as well. We caught up with Sean Murphy on the field at Truist Park not long ago, a couple of days ago to get his thoughts on what it is like to be an all-star for the first time, and here he is. All-star game is never really a goal for me. I think we just care more about winning games here, but uh, you know, if it's a, a side effect of success, that's great. I'm excited to just watch the Home Run Derby. Uh, it was my favorite thing growing up as a kid. Uh, you know, I didn't watch the game that much, but it was the Home Run Derby I was excited about, so I think seeing it in person would be fun. There are so many things that are wrapped up into the All-Star game. I mean, the Home Run Derby, they've revamped it a lot, I think, for the better. It's been pretty cool to watch the new bracket and the head-to-head battles that they have there. And Sean Murphy gets to sit down there on the field in Seattle and watch it up close and personal. And, you know, I think they're going to put on a show yet again. But great to see Sean Murphy being recognized for being, I think, the best all-around catcher in the National League, if not all of baseball this year. And the first year of his multi-year extension that was signed right after being traded over to Atlanta. The Braves just continue to build and continue to build. Uh, Ron Lacuna Jr., though, as I mentioned, you know him being the top guy in the National League as far as votes are concerned and all of baseball as far as that's concerned. As of Sunday, batting 336 with a 415 on base and slugging just over 600, 
All of those are career highs, as is his 1,019 OPS. He's got 21 homers and 39 stolen bases. The 39 steals already a career high. The Braves have played 83 games. The pace, as you know, I like to keep the 40-40 tracker going over on Twitter, at Grant McCauley is where you can find me and where you can find the tracker. 41 homers and 74 stolen bases Acuna's on pace for. Nobody's done better than a 30-50 season. And as you know, the 40-40 club is a very small group as well. Acuna looking to jump into that and be just the fifth man to get there. First player in baseball history, though, to get to the All-Star break. And we still got, you know, a week's worth of games to play. But with 20-plus homers and 35-plus stolen bases, he's the first guy in baseball history to get there before the All-Star break. He's also on pace for 46 doubles, 105 runs batted in, and a Braves record 148 runs scored because he leads all of baseball with 76 runs. This guy is just utterly ridiculous. And he's been that way for quite some time. But I know that there was some question about what was this season going to look like for him. It was going to be better, I think most agreed, than last year. But some people came in a little bit pessimistic, a little bit worried about the Ron Lacuna Jr. they saw after the knee injury. Even into the first month or so of the season when the home runs weren't flying, but the ball was getting hit very hard and the stolen bases were starting to pile up, people just kept saying, well, I'm not sure he's going to hit all the home runs to get to that 40-40 thing, so you might be wasting your time with that tracker. And I might be, but I've wasted time on sillier things in my life. Uh, Speaking of time and time that's been spent alongside Ronald Acuna Jr., Michael Soroka, who we're going to talk about a lot later in the show, who made it back from AAA for the second time this year, and of course the long road back from his Achilles injuries, Michael Soroka has played with Ronald Acuna Jr. since both men entered the Braves system back in 2015. So when you're looking to get a little bit of insight on how special a season is, well, why not ask somebody that's played with Ronald Acuna Jr. for more than a hot minute? And that would be Michael Soroka. Again, we're going on about eight years of history between these two guys. When we're talking to Michael after the game, and we're going to hear that a little bit later, his great start on Friday and what that means for his comeback and how nice it was to be back on a Truist Park mound for the first time in nearly three years, I couldn't help but ask him, you've seen Ronald Acuna Jr. do some special things over the course of your time together. What do you make of what he's doing now? And here's what Michael Soroka had to say. I laugh because he always exceeded expectations, and expectations were always very high. You know, I remember showing up in Danville and – Riley had already gotten called up to Danville at that point and was hitting. And then Ronald showed up shortly after in the 160-pound 17-year-old. And I told the guys, and I got laughed at, that, you know, Ronald might actually have more power than Riley. But, you know, that's I'm just, you know, that's, that's just whatever, you know. And I got ridiculed and, you know, come to find out a couple of years later, it's probably true. You know, and Allard and I watch him hit a 3-1 changeup over the batter's eye in Mississippi. And that's when it was kind of like, all right, I know what this kid could probably do one day. And uh, I think what he's doing with stolen bases especially is really important after his injuries as well. That's the most impressive thing to me, what he's doing right now. The stolen bases, they're coming at a rate in which it might lead him to the Braves' modern-day record. 72 stolen bases by Otis Nixon way back in 1991. That's within reach. He's on pace for 74. So, We're all impressed with the power, impressed with the speed, but it's the combination and the hard-hit balls, just the ability to do the things that Ronald's doing that has made him an all-star yet again. Uh, Also joining him, Austin Riley, who you heard mentioned there. Austin actually walked into that little presser right about the time that uh, Michael was laying all that out about how, hey, maybe between the two, Ronald might have more power than Austin Riley, who is a sizable man, big slugger, as you may well know. Second all-star game for Austin Riley. He's batting 270 with 15 homers and 43 runs knocked in. Another man on this infield heading to the All-Star game, Matt Olson, National League home run and RBI leader. 
10 home runs in the 15 games since he has dropped down in the order from the two spot. Seven home runs and 16 runs knocked in in the nine games that he's been the Atlanta cleanup hitter, where he's batting a cool 421 with 11 extra base hits. And when you've been talking about him over the past couple of weeks, the way we have with Ronald, or excuse me, with Matt Olson and Shohei Otani going at it for the Major League home run and RBI lead, that's some pretty good company. Uh, Olson's also second to Ronald Acuna Jr. in OPS, 932 on the season, and tied for second in runs scored with that Freddie Freeman guy. So some pretty good stuff happening all around for Matt Olson. But that drop in the order has just done wonders for him. It's something Brian Snitker said he'd been thinking about for a little while, but they finally pulled the trigger. And it's also benefited Ozzy Albies, who has jumped up in the order, hitting 270 with five homers and 15 runs batted in in 15 games as the Atlanta two-hitter. Hit his 20th home run of the season to help the Braves come back and beat Sandy Alcantara and the Marlins on Sunday. That is the, what, fourth 20-homer season for Ozzy Albies already. And it's going to be his third time as an All-Star. Then a couple of the All-Stars that I think we're very, very excited about that we may not have expected. Bryce Elder, who was Gwinnett's opening day starting pitcher. Let that sink in. He started his season in AAA. He was not even on the Major League roster. He got called up pretty quickly, though, as the Braves needed him. And all he's done is be Atlanta's most consistent starting pitcher, second-best ERA in Major League Baseball by one-hundredth of a point. I would say that that is all-star worthy, and congratulations to Bryce Elder. 96 innings for the Braves' right-hander, despite beginning the year in AAA. And then, of course, there's Spencer Strider. Major League strikeout leader was added again against the Marlins on Sunday. 155 punch-outs, most in baseball, and now tied for the National League lead in wins. He's 10-2, 366 ERA. Appears he's righted the ship after running into some trouble in a couple of starts against the Mets and the Tigers in June. But good to see all of those guys getting recognized for their great play. Eight Braves All-Stars are heading to the All-Star game. Now, the Atlanta pitching staff, which has been bolstered significantly by Bryce Elder in the breakout season that he's having, the work of Spencer Strider, uh, other various arms that have just kind of had to step in and help out with both Max Fried and Kyle Wright out for significant amounts of time. The Braves have been patchworking this rotation together, and they've also had some moments where the bullpen has been a little bit taxed. We were talking about that a lot in May when the Braves were running out bullpen games and didn't seem to have enough starting pitching depth. Well, the story has changed quite a bit. As of Sunday, the Braves have a 336, excuse me, 366 ERA in baseball. That's the third best. And their bullpen, 349 ERA is also the third best overall. So if you're looking at the body of work, the Braves pitching staff has made a lot of a little at times, and they've had guys step in and do the things that they needed them to do. A.J. Minter got his season back on track. And then there's a couple of other Braves relievers that I think are going to play significant roles that could really help out this club in some high-leverage spots. And that would be Kirby Yates and Joe Jimenez. I mean, these were guys that have some experience. I mean, Kirby was the best closer in baseball in 2019 before his second Tommy John, but control problems early in the year really kind of made you, you know, wonder, like, where's the role going to be for him and when's he going to get this figured out? Well, fortunately, he has. Since May 22nd, last 15 appearances for Yates, a 169 ERA, just five walks against 24 strikeouts in 16 innings. And he also mixed in a nice little string of nine straight appearances with no walks that was broken on Saturday, but the Braves were able to get out of trouble. He escaped a bases loaded jam, and he looks like the pitcher, the leverage reliever, high leverage reliever that you're going to need to help you out. Because it's not just the ninth inning. It's not just the eighth inning. You're going to have big outs in the sixth inning and the seventh and sometimes earlier, just depending on how the game is flowing. And with the Braves starting rotation, kind of having to find some answers and really asking the bullpen for a lot of help, Having Kirby Yates step up here lately has been a very, very welcome sight 
And the same with Joe Jimenez, who found those couple of miles an hour he was missing early on this season. He had that off-season back surgery over the winter. Well, his last 11 games, his fastball velocity is back up to his, his normal level that he had with the Tigers. And he's posted an 082 ERA in those 11 innings. Punched out 10, four walks. Opponents hitting just 154 against him in the last 11 outings after hitting 275 against him in the first 18. So I give you all those numbers just to let you know these are some trends that are really starting to set in. So while the first impression oftentimes sticks with you for longer than it should, especially when somebody has some struggles early on in the season because you don't have the numbers that are able to help you kind of balance that out, that can be said of some of these relievers, could be said of Matt Olson, of Michael Harris, you know, whoever it may be. But over the course of 162, and the Braves do this as, as good or better than anybody, they manage to stay on course and really think big picture. And in doing so, you see guys start to turn it around and start to do the things that you need them to do over the course of a long year. Well, the Braves blitzed their way through the month of June and put up numbers that not only set some franchise history, but a little bit of Major League Baseball history as well. We're going to dive into those statistics and hear from some of the men next as From the Diamond continues right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, back to more From the Diamond. Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back into From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Live from the Kia Studios here on a Sunday afternoon as we take a look at what the Braves have done this week. And really, I think we've got to keep an eye, a big picture on what they're doing this season, what they just did in the month of June, and what this offense may be capable of moving forward. And of course, the offense is powering this team, which has gotten some pretty decent pitching of late. And that's how you go 21-4 and in the month of June. And that's just the first of the many statistics we're about to dive into because... Atlanta provided no shortage of this, whether it was the home run totals, the runs totals, uh, the individual performances. There are so many different stats that were baked into one of the most memorable months of Braves baseball that I can remember. And we don't even have to flash back that far. I mean, keep in mind, this was a club that in 2022 was under 500, fighting to get back in the race, trailing the Mets by 10 and a half games. We've told that story plenty of times. Well, how did they turn their season around? Well, they went on a 14-game winning streak in June and won 21 games, and that got the Braves back into things. This year, we don't have to tell the narrative that way. The story did not play out that way. The Braves got off to a better start. They climbed into first place. They have won series many more times than not, and they were in a pretty comfortable spot heading into June. I remember doing calls, whether it was with Carl and Mike on their show or the midday show, whatever it was. I was on the station several times at the end of May and the start of June, talking about, well, what do the Braves need to do? What is it that they're looking for? How can they get more consistent performance and just win series? Everybody wants to see that. Everybody loves a winner. And I said, I don't know that the Braves need to go on a 14-game winning streak, but judging from recent history, it sure would be a nice way to get everything right for the season. Now, I'll stipulate, the Braves did not go on a 14-game winning streak, but what they did was win 21 of the 25 games in the month of June, and that, as they say, will play. Well, let's lead things off with the first, I guess, section of statistics, and that's the home run column. Everybody likes to look at that one, and the Braves have been wearing out that column. 155 home runs on the season coming into Sunday's series finale against the Miami Marlins. Far and away the most in baseball. And typically, as you look at these offensive numbers, you're going to find the Braves, then a little gap, and whoever the second most is. In this case, it's the L.A. Dodgers, who came in with 130, just ahead of the Tampa Bay Rays, who have 129 home runs on the season. The Los Angeles Angels, not far behind them. And you're going to hear a little bit more about that Shohei Otani guy, of course, on this show and here in this segment. 
because Matt Olson has been kind of going tit for tat back and forth with Shohei Otani and home runs for all of Major League Baseball, runs batted in for all of Major League Baseball. That we'll get to in just a moment. When you look at Braves scoring runs per game, that's always a good one to look at. 5.66 runs per game through 82 contests this year. That is the most in the National League, second only to the Texas Rangers. If you're looking for the next National League club on that list, it's the L.A. Dodgers, joined by the Arizona Diamondbacks as the only two teams in the National League who are averaging five or more runs per game. That's what the Braves have been doing. You look at the Dodgers year after year, then, of course, you look at the Diamondbacks and see the success that they're having this year. Clearly, they're capable of scoring some runs as well. The Braves are 27 runs scored behind the Texas Rangers for the top spot in all of Major League Baseball. But the Braves are not playing second fiddle to anybody when you look at overall OPS, on-base plus slugging. The Braves do it better than anybody, and it's really not even close. Only two teams are over 800 as a club, which sounds like an insane statistic. Born out of a video game, but that really is kind of what this segment is all about. Braves as a team have an 837 OPS, and we're talking about over 3,100 plate appearances. But when you hit the most home runs in the league, you're going to have the opportunity to do that. Let me get into the month of June because I don't know that it's going to be an easy way to keep all of these organized. This is almost just a stream of consciousness born out of statistics and tweets that I've sent, that I've seen, and that I've been able to curate over the last really two to three weeks as the Braves offense just went supernova and started out slugging basically everyone in baseball on the month for this club. 307 batting average, 372 on base, and a 572 slugging percentage. That's an OPS just shy of 950. That was the team's slash line. They scored 175 runs, had 42 doubles, and 61 home runs. The 61 home runs set a record for any National League team in any month in the history of the National League. That was one I didn't see coming. But again, that Matt Olson guy was kind of in the middle of that. And that Ronald Acuna Jr. guy, who hasn't come up in this segment, but believe me, will be a common thread throughout the entire show. We'll get to him in a moment as well. But 61 home runs for the club. 27 stolen bases, Acuna involved in that. Then you can look at what the Braves have done extremely well this month that maybe early in the year, people were saying, that's the problem with this club. They're so boomer bust. They live on home runs. They don't really do anything well to manufacture runs. That no longer the case, if in fact it ever was. A walk percentage of 9.3 and their strikeout percentage dipped down to 17.8, one of the best in all of baseball. And if you just look at the bulk of strikeouts over the course of the season, the Braves have been able to course correct better than I think anybody could have possibly imagined or asked for as we look at the team stats of all teams in MLB. You might have expected at the start of the year to see the Braves in the top five in the National League or maybe all of baseball in strikeouts. That simply is not the case. As of Sunday, the Braves were 24th in baseball in strikeouts. So when you go further back, that means the fewer that you've got. And they're nearly 200 behind the Minnesota Twins with the San Francisco Giants checking in with the second most strikeouts in baseball. But you're not seeing the Braves at the top of that list. That's something that really leads to the relentlessness of this offense because they're always seemingly doing something productive with their at-bats. Strikeouts are not short-circuiting rallies. Now let's talk about a little statistic called first-inning runs because that one, extremely popular. Always nice to score in the early going, and the Braves have played 87 first-inning runs already this season through 83 games. That's more than one per game, and well more than the 71 first-inning runs that they scored in the entire 2022 season. The Dodgers and Astros are the only other two clubs in all of baseball with more than 60 
first inning runs this season. You won't be surprised by some of these other first inning statistics. An OPS of nearly 1060. Absolutely absurd. Atlanta as a club is batting 343 in the first inning. And Ronald Acuna Jr. has been an absolute machine. In the first inning this season, he is batting 453. Acuna has four more leadoff home runs. That gets him up to 30 on his career. But when it comes to long balls in the first inning, Matt Olson leads all of baseball with 10. Austin Riley is tied for third with eight home runs in the first inning. That is how you pile up 87 first inning runs. Heading into Sunday, Matt Olson was comfortably leading the National League with 28 home runs, also sitting atop all of baseball with 68 runs batted in, one ahead of Adoles Garcia and Shohei Otani, and it's been Otani and Olson in the month of June, closing it out and heading into July, seemingly going toe-for-toe for the most home runs in baseball. Now, it wasn't too long ago, in fact, it was just a few weeks ago, that everyone was wondering when Matt Olson was going to be able to get right. The Braves made a lineup shuffle, moving him down into the middle of the order, putting Ozzie Albies in the second spot, and I would say that Brian Snitker's decision to do that is one of the things, one of the catalysts for this offense just taking that next step, and they have taken quite a few steps this year, and Matt Olson's right in the center of it. Over the first 14 games, after dropping from the two spot into the fifth and fourth slots in the lineup, Olsen has gone 20 for 58 with 10 home runs, 5 doubles, 23 runs knocked in, 18 runs scored, posted a 983 slugging percentage with an OPS of nearly 1,400. I would say that switch has worked, but let's hear from Matt Olsen on moving down in the lineup and really what it is that's going so right for him at the plate right now. I've started to feel better for sure. There was a stretch there where it just felt like really high effort. Um, felt like I was going up and, and kind of grinding every at-bat, and I feel like I've kind of steadily worked to a place where it's slowed down a little bit. I, I feel like I'm not having to work as hard and you know slow it down in the box a little bit, and normally when you're feeling that way, you're going to see some better results. Well, that's Braves first baseman Matt Olson, who has been on an absolute tear over the last few weeks. Looking big picture and trying to put this all into perspective or, or some kind of context for how exactly an offense gets as good as this one has got, Charlie Morton is not known for swinging the bat. He's not paid to swing the bat, but he's been on some clubs that have been pretty darn good at that, including a Braves club from just a year ago. But Charlie Morton was asked, just as a pitcher, what is it like to sit and watch this offense go to work, either on the day you're pitching or just kind of being on the sideline to see the groove that they have been in collectively. It's not just Ronald Acuna Jr. who's putting up MVP caliber numbers. It's not just Matt Olson making a run at the home run title. It's not just any one player. It's this entire group. Here's Charlie Morton discussing what it's like to watch this lineup and what it is that makes them so good. I would say that that what they've been doing and like watching that. I mean, I guess if you play long enough, you think, man, like I've seen enough. Like I've seen enough where not really much surprises me anymore. But that is ridiculous to watch a guy come out there. The dude's sitting ninety-eight to hundred, and they're just putting swing after swing on the ball. I don't even think they walked anybody the first inning, and they put up six runs. That was ridiculous. Like the past couple of days, too, it was like to watch them do that. Because I've been in the cage, I've been in the box, I've watched guys try to hit home runs, try to put the barrel on the ball just during BP. And like pro guys can do it, they do it. But at the same time, to watch guys go out there, next guy after the next guy after the next guy, squaring up a guy that's throwing 100 miles an hour and who's pitched really well. There's a reason why those guys have won games and there's there's a reason why they come into this park for the series and feeling good they're playing well they're pitching well and to watch the guys do that is 
I, I don't think I've seen that before. So, uh, and I, I honestly don't think that they know what they're doing. Like, I don't think they realize how good they are, which is awesome because I think there's a lot of people that are trying to put it in perspective. They're trying to quantify exactly what's going on. But I don't, the guys in that room, I really don't think that they know what's going on. I just think that they're like, oh, we're, we're pros, we're good dudes, like we care about each other and we, we go out and play. And I, that's what I'm seeing. They're all pulling for each other. They're all supportive of each other. They're extremely positive and, and relaxed. They're really humble for how good they are. So like for me to be in that clubhouse, I feel so spoiled. Like it's kind of surreal actually. It's like such a good group of dudes that are so good. So for me, it's a really special time in my career just to watch what they're doing and to watch the quality of people that are in that room. With the big numbers and the wins piling up, it's easy to see why the Braves have been enjoying themselves quite a bit over the past few weeks. As for what the secret to all of this is, everybody rolling at the same time, Austin Riley said that it's kind of a simple concept and not necessarily one that you might be thinking. We got a really good group. The clubhouse is phenomenal. Guys are pulling for each other in the Every day, coming to the yard, working, we give each other, you know, hard times a lot. Just, you know, I think it's good to keep things light. You know, it's a long season. You know, the ebbs and flows, and, and you know, you try to keep it as light as possible. Um, and I think that just kind of keeps you locked in. He's not the only man that's feeling that way. I think that to a man, that is kind of the Braves' mantra right now, is believing in that group, the confidence in that group, and their ability to go out and get the job done, and they enjoy playing together. That's what we talked about last week on the show with the culture of success that the Braves have. I want to go back to Charlie Morton's comments after Saturday's game one more time because I feel like he was able to really sum it up, adding on to what Austin Riley was saying about this group and how well they play together and you know, the sky being the limit for what they can do on the field based on how they prepare and most importantly, what they're focused on and sometimes what they're not focused on. It's just an energy. I don't know how else to say it. Like... I don't know what Riles' batting average is, what his OPS is. I didn't know until today, until I made a point of looking up and looking at how Murph was doing. Like, I don't know what Maddie's doing. I know that he hit a bunch of home runs, and I know that he's second in the league in home runs because the guys looked it up, and they were talking about it because it was also something happened on the TV, and they were talking about Shohei's leading the league, and someone was like, I wonder how Matt's doing. And it's like, we didn't know. We didn't know. Like, we were like, we knew Matt had a bunch of homers, but we didn't know. And I like that. Like, I like that it's not written on the wall for everybody in the room. Like, it's great because it's, it becomes more about just trying to play baseball, playing the right way and preparing the right way and, um, and supporting each other and less about now's the time of year, like we're the all-star game and guys finally get the recognition that they deserve. So there's that obviously, but at the same time, I don't remember the good teams that I've been on, the good offenses, guys making a big deal of that, you know, statistics, even though uh, it's pretty easy to do because those teams were really good, both sides of the ball, like really, really good. So I think for me, it's always kind of been about the room more than the numbers because I think that the talent can manifest itself when the guys are comfortable, they're confident, and they're, they feel like they are supported and they support each other. That support is a huge part of the Braves' success. There's just no two ways about that. Those are the words from Charlie Morton over the course of the weekend as the Braves were bombing the Miami Marlins in the first inning with six runs against Uri Perez, who was chased after just one out. 
just another incredible showing by this offense. And not surprising, when you talk to a lot of players, they may be somewhat aware of their stats. They're posted on a big board, but the concentration is not going to stats and paces and all of the things that we're talking about on the show and enjoying on social media as well. That's for us to discuss and apparently for them just to pile up. Well, that'll wrap things up for this look at some of the great stats from the month of June for the Braves. There were so many more, and I'm sure that we'll continue to discuss all these stats and more as long as this offense wants to keep on doing what it's doing. When we come back, though, we're going to discuss some of the biggest stories from across baseball from the week that was, and we'll do it next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back in to From the Diamond. Grant McCauley with you from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game as we continue on and expand our scope a little bit beyond what the Atlanta Braves have been doing, which goodness knows we could do wall-to-wall coverage, and we basically do here on the show, but it is good to see some of the big stories that have happened across the world of baseball, and we'd like to do it by taking a trip around the big leagues. Been doing that for a while here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Let's start up in New York. We're going to be talking a lot about the Mets here, uh, just not just in this segment, but also my buddy Casey Stern is going to join me to try to figure out how exactly things went so wrong for the New York Mets. I mean, we thought we'd be talking a little bit about this rivalry that was born last year and gave us that dramatic finish where the two teams won 101 games. We may have thought that, but that ain't the way it played out in the end. But Mets owner Steve Cohen, as we well know, is a guy who's not afraid to step into the baseball world and make an impact, make some decisions, shake some things up, spend some money. Those are all things that Steve Cohen has done since taking over for the New York Mets. And they had great success last year under his ownership. And they went out over the winter and they spent a bunch of money. They would have spent even more if they could have gotten Carlos Correa's medicals to their liking. That didn't happen, though. But as we sit here on Sunday and look at the Mets, who were playing Sunday night baseball against the San Francisco Giants, and you look up and down the standings, did you expect to see them at any point this year, 19 games back? Did you expect to see 19 games between the Braves and the Mets at any point this season, I would say no, regardless of who is in the position of chasing and who is in the position of perhaps being in first place, if that's something we're talking about. But uh, for Steve Cohen, he decided to post on Twitter, I'm going to hold a press conference. And that was all the detail that you got from it. And so you're kind of thinking, all right, well, this is an owner who's not afraid to make an impact, not afraid to make a statement. Clearly, he's going to make a statement, but it ended up being surprisingly status quo. You just kind of got the old vote of confidence for the current leadership and for the team. But let's hear from Steve Cohen, who is sizing up what has been going on with this club, where he stands, kind of what he's feeling. Here's Steve Cohen. Steve, what's your current confidence level in that management group, be it you know, Buck Showalter, field manager, or, or Billy Epler? Hey, listen, I mean, you know, I, I'm a patient guy, okay? Now everybody wants you know, a headline. Everybody says, fire this person, fire that person. But I, I don't see that as a way to operate. Um, if you want to attract good people to this organization, the worst thing you can do is be impulsive, okay? And win the headline for the day, and overall, over time, attract, you know, you're not gonna attract the best talent, because they're not gonna wanna work for somebody who has a short fuse. I, listen, I know fans that, you know, they want something to happen, I get it, but sometimes you can't do it you know, because you have long-term objectives. And that's the way it is. Um, you know, listen, I, I've been clear from day one that I'm still looking for president of baseball ops. Billy knows, I've had that conversation with him. He's supportive. You know, my view is this is a very complex job. 
and there's a lot to do, and it's a lot on one person. And so, I mean, obviously we have people under Billy, but uh, from a leadership standpoint, you know, that's still out there. And we'll see, at, at some point we will fill that position. And, you know, my view is, you know, Billy will be part of that. At that point, I've enhanced the management team, and, and that's the goal. Maybe he's been watching a lot of Frank the Tank videos, or maybe he's watched none of them. But Mets fans certainly have been very unhappy with the way that this club has played over the course of the season. And how could you not be disappointed when you think about the record $360 million payroll? And that's the guy writing these checks. A $99 million luxury tax bill that he's paying as well. And this team has not been able to get rolling at any point. But as I mentioned earlier in the show, I mean, they came into June three and a half games out and in second place. Really, you felt like at that point, Everything that you might need to do this season is still attainable. You can still reach for that. And Steve Cohen did bring up in that press conference, you know, there have been teams that have fallen back eight and a half games in the wild card and fought back to get into the postseason. It's happened each of the last three years. The Mets find themselves nine games back in the wild card. It's doable, but you got to think about the pile that you got to climb over in the wild card, including the Philadelphia Phillies and the Miami Marlins just in this division. And that's to say nothing about what might happen out west. You got the Dodgers and Diamondbacks putting up some pretty serious numbers out there and figure to factor in there. So it's going to be a steep hill to climb for the New York Mets. We'll continue to monitor that and we'll get into this conversation a lot more with Casey Stern when he joins me in just a few minutes. But the Mets, meanwhile, they celebrated one of baseball's great annual, I guess, rites of passage, if you want to call it that. I don't know if it's a holiday, but it's a day that everybody likes to have a little bit of fun with. It was Bobby Bonilla Day. As that happened on Saturday, Bonilla was collecting his annual paycheck from the New York Mets. It just happened to be... $1,193,000 and change. 13th installment that he's being paid for this as well. Mets have paid him $15.5 million not to play the 2000 season, and they've got 12 years left and $13 plus million still to pay him. So Bonilla, according to baseball reference, $52.4 million over 16 seasons, and more than half of that's going to come from his deferred money because of this Mets deal. And it's not uncommon for there to be deferred money. But the Mets could have paid him $5.9 million not to play for them in 2000 and save themselves uh, quite a bit of coin over the course of quite a few years. But uh, this Bobby Bonilla Day has just been one of those things that people always laugh about each and every year, even though there is more deferred money out there uh, for a number of other baseball teams. we got to note its passage, and it's not stopping anytime soon. we got 12 more years of that. In more pertinent on-field news, Domingo Herman of the New York Yankees tossed a 24th perfect game in Major League history against the Oakland Athletics. It happened on Wednesday night out at the Coliseum, so you know it wasn't sold out. But you know a lot of people there that were there. Maybe that's a little tongue-in-cheek, but they got to see some baseball history. Only 24 of these things have been thrown. This is the first one since 2012. And that perfect game, 27 up, 27 down for Herman, is a piece of baseball history the Yankees are very familiar with, with David Cohen and David Wells both having thrown one as well. Let's take a listen to the final out of Domingo Herman's 24th perfect game in baseball history. Grounded to third. Donaldson has it. There it is. Perfection for Domingo Herman. Domingo Herman has thrown the 24th perfect game in baseball history. The fourth perfect game in Yankees history. And you will always remember where you were June 28th of 2023. He did it. Wow. 
That's the call on the Yes Network of the final out of Herman's perfect game. Herman and the New York Yankees most certainly will remember, I mentioned as David Cohn, David Wells, also that Don Larson guy who did it in the 1956 World Series. Perhaps that is the most notable of all perfect games, as that's quite a time to throw one of those. 11 nothing win for the Yankees, 9 strikeouts for Herman, 27 up, 27 down against Oakland, so congratulations to him on what was quite a performance, a history-making performance uh, for the righty. Aroldis Chapman, meanwhile, became the first man to change teams in what I would call the first major trade of the summer. We know the trade deadline's coming at the end of July. Once you get past that checkpoint uh, for the All-Star game, you're going to be looking at contenders starting to make the wheeling and dealing. And I have no idea how this is going to look on Twitter now that verification is such a mess. So there's going to be plenty of rumors that are going to have nothing to do with reality. So watch yourself and your timeline on that. But Aroldis Chapman with the Texas Rangers now in a three-person trade. Cole Reagans and Ronnie Cabrera were sent to the Royals. And Aroldis Chapman is joining a very good Texas club. One of the surprises, I think, of the 2023 season. And they've spent a lot of money in free agency to build up the winter that they've got going on out in Texas. But it's been working. And that's even with Jacob deGrom down for the rest of the year. But adding to their bullpen is the first of many contenders that are going to want to try to strengthen that group up. Chapman had been recently pitching for the New York Yankees. Did not look great in 2022. ERA nearly four and a half. His fastball had lost a little bit of zip, but uh, looking pretty good here with the Royals in 2022 or 2023 rather. 2.45 ERA, 53 punch outs in just over 29 innings. So, at uh, 35 years old, Chapman still got a little bit of zip. I think that there might have been more clubs that could have been interested in him. I don't know if the Royals just kind of felt like this was a package too good to pass up. Or that they just want to go ahead and get this deal done and not risk there being some kind of injury that could keep them from being able to trade Chapman. But he was clearly signed over the course of the offseason to maybe help him out for a little bit, and then they'd be able to flip him to a contender, and that they do as he ends up with the Texas Rangers. We talked a little bit earlier about the Braves having eight All-Stars. That's a high in Major League Baseball. It's a franchise record. It's one off the Major League record. But the All-Star starters were revealed this past week, and the reserves were revealed on Sunday. The Dodgers and Braves are each going to have three players in the starting lineup. Rangers, though, going to have four starters. Just looking at the American League, Jonah Heim of the Rangers, Yandy Diaz of the Rays, Marcus Simeon also of the Rangers. That's catcher first and second. Third baseman is Josh Young. At shortstop, Corey Seager. So you got three straight Rangers, four out of five. Only Diaz at first base to break that up of the Tampa Bay Rays. In the outfield, you have Mike Trout of the Angels. Aaron Judge has been voted in, though he is injured and will not play. And Randy Orozarena of the Rays will also be in that outfield. The DH, to no surprise, is Shohei Otani. On the National League side, you got Braves catcher Sean Murphy. Freddie Freeman of the Dodgers will be starting at first base. Luis Arise of the Marlins. We just got a good look at him. He is a second baseman as he edged out Ozzie Albies there, but Ozzie, of course, on the team. Nolan Arenado starting at third base of the Cardinals. Orlando Arcia starting at short. Then you got Braves outfielder Ron Lacuna Jr. Mookie Betts of the Dodgers. Corbin Carroll of the Diamondbacks. So I believe he's a little bit dinged up as well. And DHJD Martinez will round out that National League squad. And, of course, we saw all of the pitchers and all of the reserves that were named on Sunday. Congratulations to all these guys for an honor that, you know, whether or not you set out for it. You heard Sean Murphy a little bit earlier in the show. It's not really a goal, but if it's a byproduct of your success, certainly pretty nice to be recognized by being able to play on a field with the best in the sport. And speaking of the best in the sport, I know we spend a lot of time on Ronald Acuna Jr. here, but what Shohei Otani does pretty much puts him in another category because he may have just had, by all accounts, the best June in baseball history. Matt Snyder, who was on the show last week, he writes for CBS Sports. He put all of this together, and I thought this was a really fascinating article. 
Because the only guy that has done anything close to what Otani did, or is currently doing, is Babe Ruth. But you got to think about the fact that Babe Ruth became such a good hitter that he just gave up pitching, even though that's what he came to the big leagues doing and known as. He just became a dual threat that became so good at offense, they just weren't going to have him pitch anymore. One of the many things that Otani did over the past week is become the first American League pitcher to strike out 10 or more batters and hit a homer in the same game. First time since 2008, CeCe Sabathia was the last one that did that. But Otani came into Sunday hitting 310, 15 doubles, 5 triples, a major league leading 30 home runs, 67 RBI, just shy of Matt Olson, who has 68. He'd scored 60 runs and stolen 11 bases in 82 games. Sounds like an all-star to me. Well, then you got to look at what he's doing on the mound. He's 7-3 with an ERA of just over 3, 127 strikeouts in 95 and a third innings, uh, lowest hit rate in the major leagues. Basically, he hits so much better than he allows the least amount of damage to be done against him when he's on the mound. So uh, the dual threat is absolutely absurd. Highest strikeout rate in the American League as well. So all of this being put together is just absolutely mind-boggling to try to figure out how you could find a better month of June than this. Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Rogers Hornsby, Shohei Otani uh, among the players with a full month of 100-plus plate appearances and an OPS over 1,400. But Otani, again, it's the pitching on top of that because it's not just what he did at the plate. He had 15 homers this past month. Sammy Sosa, Kyle Schwarber, Babe Ruth, Pedro Guerrero, Jim Tomey, and Bob Johnson and uh, Roger Maris also able to hit 15 or more home runs in a month. But then you throw on top of that what he's doing on the mound and the fact that we may never see anything like this again in our lifetime, and you get a pretty good picture of the man who may just very well be the best player in Major League Baseball. When we come back, we're going to turn our focus back to the New York Mets and try to figure out what it is that's going wrong and if they have any hopes of figuring it out and salvaging this season. Casey Stern is going to join me next right here, and we'll dive in to the New York Mets and all their problems. That's coming up next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, more from the Diamond with Graham McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back into From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Live from the Kia Studios in Midtown as we wrap up the weekend. Uh, the week that was and really the month that was for the Atlanta Braves has been the topic du jour on this show, as you might have imagined. We are in the month of July, though, and we look across the National League standings heading toward the All-Star break, which is fast approaching and you kind of wonder, is this what we thought it was going to be? And I don't think you have to wonder very long because the answer is no. The New York Mets not being a factor in this division is probably one of the biggest surprises in baseball. We're going to dive in right here and see if we can kind of make heads or tails of where the Mets are and what has been going on and if they have any chance of reversing their fortunes. Because as we keep saying, there is a lot of baseball left to be played. I want to welcome in Casey Stern. He, of course, a longtime host on MLB Network Radio, and he has a great podcast, Unfiltered. I invite you to check that out. So, Casey, while this is a division that is not playing out the way that many of us expected over the course of the winter, and by many of us, I mean just about every single one of us, we want to kind of figure out what it is that's going on up in Flushing because for the Mets, this has not been the season that they were designing and putting together over the course of the winter. Uh, Casey, I know that you have followed the Braves, the Mets, this division, all of baseball throughout your career, and as much as we all love watching the game, breaking down the game, talking about the game, if you're a Mets fan this year, it's got to be pretty tough to find the reasons, the answers, and really any solace in what has happened over the first 81 or so games. You know, it is, it, Grant, it's troubling and happy to be on with you. I, I remember covering it, being there up close and personal in 2007 when they collapsed and they had the huge lead and sitting there on September 7th or whatever it was and, and almost double-digit games ahead of the Phillies. And then 
that went awry. And I thought for a long time that's got to be as big a disappointment as the Met fan has seen. This season, coming off 101 wins, Mm -hmm. coming off of adding a Verlander and a lot of Met fans understanding that Jacob deGrom kind of had to go because that wasn't going to work. The idea that Steve Cohen was willing to spend even more, even though the Correa thing didn't work out, and I know he hasn't been that great either, that the team was going to be set to battle the Braves and be better than they were past that June 1 where they led by 10 games a year ago. To see it fall apart, look, it's very similar to what's happening in San Diego out west, and it's a case of nothing is working, and everyone's accountable. Everyone is to blame. In New York, they're putting the blame on Buck Showalter and saying that the same reason that they turned around all of the rhetoric and that they changed the vibe and the identity, which was him, clearly a big part of that last year, mm-hmm. is now the worst reason you know that they're that they're bad. And clearly we understand if we're rational, that can't be true. Right. The accountability falls on the players and it falls on the roster. Look, Verlander and Scherzer up and down. Lately, Scherzer has been good. Verlander's had a couple of good outings, but they haven't been nearly what you thought. The back end of the rotation has been deplorable. Unlike the Braves, who have for years now with Alex Anthopoulos been able to go down deep into the system, let's not forget it was years ago that a Soroka wasn't supposed to even be in the rotation and then was starting an opening day. Max Fried was in the back end, then he's at the forefront. Mm -hmm. The Mets don't have those kind of answers, and that lack of depth has been the biggest issue because, look, an Edwin Diaz injury is allowed to hurt you. It's not allowed to cripple you, and it's crippled them. Yeah, from a pitching standpoint. I think it definitely has. And trying to work that problem backwards in a bullpen can be incredibly difficult. The last three outs, they're a challenge, and they're that way for a reason. A lot of things have to go right to get to the last three outs, but losing Edwin Diaz kind of felt like the start of just this cascade of misadventures for the Mets here in 2023. And the Braves and Mets did provide us with such a crazy 2022. I think most people were expecting the rematch, as you mentioned. And the Mets didn't sit around over the winter, as you talked about. I mean, Steve Cohen went out there and outspent everybody. If he'd gotten Carlos Correa, he could have spent even more. So picking apart this to see if we can find the reasons, because it's more than just regression year over year. If you had to look at it from a player performance standpoint, what do you think the central issue is on the field? Because I look at this lineup, and outside of Pete Alonso. There are an awful lot of question marks and a lot of guys who have not been able to get back to even the norms or what you would have expected them to be. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's underperformance in the back of the baseball card because Starling Marte hasn't been what we know he's capable of being, not just as a Met, but as a Pirate. We've seen that. Jeff McNeil, we know the kind of hitter he is. Look, I'll say this, and I'm sure a lot of Braves fans listening remember all the good things about those games from the Braves side down the stretch last year. But to me, Jeff McNeil was the toughest out in yep. every one of those games. Agreed. I mean, I think I think the Braves fan would agree with that. So that not being there is just a weird thing. The fact that, you know, look, Alonzo's injury did not help clearly, but again, that can't hurt you as bad as it has. But their lack of depth, relying too much on Daniel Vogelbach, who they got late last year. You know, Alvarez is a talented kid, but he's still a kid. And you, you have to go to the fact that, look, The Braves have had, and I I use the Cardinals because now they're not the Cardinal way, they're the way off, the way that they've been this year. (laughs) But the the Cardinal way used to be where guys would come up and immediately, in a rotation, a Waka when he was young, look, Wayno at the beginning when they had a Chris Carpenter, Mm -hmm. you think about the Colton Wongs and the Matt Carpenters, guys would come in. We've seen ultra-talented guys that the Braves have brought up, and they have fit into a culture that has prepared them and developed them the right way, that they're ready when they're there. That's an issue that's under the surface that the Mets have got to address because they have brought up guys who seemingly have been rushed, 
not ready, not performing as well, maybe not used the right ways, which certainly could be a buck issue. There are a lot of reasons the Mets are here, but the fact that they are closer to the Nationals in the standings than they are to the Braves is a shock to everybody outside of New York and certainly within. No question. Chatting with Casey Stern here. He joins me on the WaitFor.com hotline on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game here on From the Diamond. Now, you brought up Buck Showalter and, and culture, obviously important for every club. I wrote an article about this not too long ago about one of the X factors for the Braves is not just how they perform on the field, but how the accountability that they have, the, the fact that everyone is just kind of rowing at the same time in the same direction. That certainly helps. The manager, though, ultimately is going to bear some responsibility when a team doesn't perform as well with the general manager. And this is a roster that worked so well last year. Uh, And while there were some changes, Verlander for DeGrom, as you touched on, and every club has its injuries, where does, for Buck Showalter and the the underperformance, the burden of command really start to come into play? Because I know Steve Cohen is a big personality, and I can't imagine that if they continue to underperform, and we'll get to the press conference in just a moment, but... You know, I just kind of wonder for Buck, everything seems to have flipped completely, done a 180 on him. Yeah, I think to your point, look, here, here let's start where it doesn't and then cycle down to kind of funnel down to where it does. It doesn't in him having to use guys who should be in AAA as pitchers in relief or in the back of the rotation. Of course. That's the depth from Billy Epler, right? It doesn't in Starling Marte making bad outs, hitting the double plays with guys, bases loaded, not getting on base, Jeff McNeil, guys not playing to their capability on a daily basis. It doesn't to Scherzer and Verlander not pitching consistently well. Here's where it does. Cohen used the tennis term unforced errors in his press conference. The mental mistakes, the amount of base running blunders, the amount of times they're not hitting cutoff men in the outfield, the amount of times they're not getting the ball on the ground just to get a run in when it's being handed to you. Those kind of things have been way off the wrong direction. And that, to me, is absolutely something that has to go to Buck has to go to Lindor, Alonzo, Scherzer, Verlander, leaders inside the room, to your point, all who developed that culture. Mm-hmm. Because to me, you can't put on Buck that, you look, he, he doesn't have good choices of who to put out there right now to get to the 7-8-9 that he wants when he looks at Rayleigh, let's say, Adovino and Robertson. He's got a lot of mishmash that should be in AAA and not the kind that the Braves have in AAA who could pitch at the big league level, the kind who belong down there. But when you are throwing the ball away, kicking it away, making base running errors that are costing you games that has to fall on the manager. And I will be fair and and honest saying myself, that's been the most surprising part of this team, even more so than the underperformance is that with the veterans and the winners that they have in that room, they have performed like a team that's gone off the deep end. And honestly, that has fallen under these expectations instead of living up to them. Yeah, and that's just something that, for whatever the reason is, you got to find a way to correct it, and hopefully sooner than later. But now they're sitting here, and we're roughly halfway through the season. Uh, at, at looking at this Steve Cohen press conference, I thought it was fascinating. When I saw the announcement, I was expecting something big, and in, in reality, nothing really seemed to come of it other than just admitting that this team has underperformed for one reason or another. Knowing his nature, though, his impetuous style, I got to say I was surprised by that. What did you expect from that press conference? And then what do you take away from that? Or did it just come out as maybe a little bit of eyewash right now? And and maybe we'll find out later what exactly Steve Cohen was really thinking and what he really wants to do. Honestly, and I, and I may be in the minority on this, I wasn't that surprised. And I think his tone and tenor were the right one. If he comes out there, look, he's not going to throw tables and be and say, hey, look, everything sucks. Because when a club hears that from an owner, 
that's going to take you further off the wrong direction. This isn't the movie Major League. It doesn't work that way with us yeah. against them, right? So his confidence in how he has to, how his demeanor was the right kind. I think the interesting part was he was pretty candid about the fact that, hey, look, if we're not good and we still can't write this ship in the next few weeks, we're going to sell mm -hmm. and we will go ahead and fix this thing. It's rare that owners usually don't allow. Now, look, he didn't go into exact trades or what they're going to do. But let's just go back in time about a week or so ago. They eat some money for Eduardo Escobar to go make a deal because they know the pitching in their system right now is decrepit. They need to fix it. How much money do you have to eat on Scherzer? How much do you have to eat on Verlander? If you can get prospects back, are you willing to eat most, if not all, those contracts to do it because they're that desperate? Most owners wouldn't have the money to do that. Steve Cohen has the money to do that. So it makes them an interesting seller at the deadline because of their ability, Grant, to eat so much more money in contracts than most teams would be able to do to try and get some prospects in return. I'm really fascinated by that because the thought of Justin Verlander signing over the winter and then maybe being traded by July was just not on my bingo card. It wasn't on any draft of any script that I came up with for the 2023 National League East race. But as you look at the standings this week, they saw the Mets as far as 17 and a half games back in the division at one point, eight and a half, almost uh, what, maybe nine games back in the wild card, at least in that ballpark as we head into the weekend. I would have never predicted there would have been this kind of gap between the Braves and the Mets this year. I know the trade deadline is still out there, as we just talked about, but if you're Billy Epler or Steve Cohen, uh, it, what they do, I guess, is largely going to depend on how this Mets club can perform for the next month or so. And Steve Cohen did point it out. I know it's probably the quote that was a takeaway of that press conference. Crazier things have happened in the wildcard standings than a team getting itself together in the second half. But I'd be hard-pressed to look at what I saw in the first 80, 82 games and feel like, You've got some confidence that the Mets can really turn this thing around. Yeah, I think to your point, and look, even the most pessimistic Met fan or an angry Braves fan listening, looking at it, who hates the Mets, would all agree they're better than they're playing. Yeah. Their, their roster is better than that. So if I said to a Braves fan listening or a Met fan who's pessimistic, hey, they're going to have a better second half, I don't think it would surprise any of us because just the nature of who the guys are, they should have a better second half. The question, however, is now the gap that they're behind. They don't have to be better than the Atlanta Braves the rest of the way, but they have to be better than all of those teams that are ahead of them mm -hmm. that are not named the Braves, right? So how are they going to be that much better than the Marlins or the Phillies or the Giants out west or the mm -hmm. Dodgers or Diamondbacks, whoever doesn't win that division? And to that extent, because we're talking about a team now that has to, let's be fair, possibly have the best record in the National League the rest of the way to try and do that. So I think we all know they can be better. We're not going to be surprised. But here's the problem, just to kind of funnel that out. It's only a short amount of time. So what if they cut it to five out out of the wild card with four or five teams ahead of them? Now you're willing to not sell assets. Now you're willing to go buy and add relievers and add more money and look even more foolish. The conundrum for the Mets will not be if they continue to be this bad. Or if they go reel off 12 in a row, the conundrum is going to be if they're just a little bit better, but not good enough to significantly cut this gap between now and August 1st. Yep, I agree. I mean, my last question was, how do you throw prospects at temporary fixes to save such a rough season and risk you know, putting yourself that much further behind? Because as we've seen over the course of baseball, I mean, decisions are made for a variety of reasons that in hindsight, you go back and maybe play a little bit of a different way. 
But given the money that Steve Cohen can put into it, you're right. This could be a very fascinating deadline for the New York Mets. Casey, I appreciate all of your time. Let everybody out there know where you're at these days, what you're working on, and anything that you'd like to plug. Uh, you could jump on uh, Twitter at Casey Stern, follow me there, and get in the bio, get my YouTube channel, and you could find my podcast unfiltered anywhere that you get your podcast, Apple, Spotify, everywhere else. We've got all sorts of guests from current players, former players, GMs. We've got all sorts of things and interactions with fans as well, and I think you'll enjoy it. And you know, certainly the Braves fans are enjoying enough watching this baseball team. Uh, the opposite of kind of what the Mets fan is dealing with, as they're trying to uh, outlast the Nationals. Uh, think about that if you're yeah. sitting there in a seat of somewhere in Queens. It's, it's not easy. It's unbelievable. I would not want to be Frank the Tank Fleming these days. No. I, I don't know if he's going to make it through this season. <laughs> Any day. Put, Any yeah, day. Most days. <laughs> Putting that aside, though, Casey, I appreciate all of your time, and uh, hopefully we can do this again at some point uh, throughout the course of the rest of the season. We'd love to have you back on again. Grant, always a pleasure. Thanks again to Casey Stern. Make sure you check out his podcast, Unfiltered, wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, we will turn our attention back to the Atlanta Braves and get you set for the final week before the All-Star break. And we'll do it next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, back to more From the Diamond, Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back in from the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game as we wrap things up for the week that was and take a look ahead for the week to come for the Atlanta Braves, the final week of the first half of the 2023 season for the team that has the best record in baseball. A lot of good stuff we've gotten to on the show. Also appreciate Casey Stern checking in to talk about some not-so-good stuff that was going on with the New York Mets, and they've got a lot of things to figure out. But the Braves, meanwhile, are right where they want to be at the top of the NL East and playing some of the best baseball I think we've seen the Braves play in recent memory. And one of the things that we've talked about a lot over the first half of the season has been how are the Braves going to get their starting rotation lined up the way that they need it to be in order to do the things that they need to do. You got Spencer Strider, who's a major league strikeout leader, improved to 10 and 2 on Sunday. He looks like he has turned the corner from a couple of little speed bumps that he had over the course of this season. Looked extremely good. Bryce Elder, just like Spencer Strider, named to the all-star team. What a story he's been. National League, or one of the uh, league leaders in ERA in the National League and in all of baseball, I believe he's just a, a percentage point, one hundredth of a point behind Justin Steele of the Chicago Cubs. That's been quite a story. Charlie Morton, the veteran, I think has been more good than bad this year. There's been some ups and downs there. And then you've tried to patchwork the rest of this rotation together because you've only gotten 10 starts out of Max Fried and Cal Wright combined. One man, though, who we wanted to see in this equation for quite some time has been Michael Soroka. We got a look at him about a month ago when he came up to make a couple of starts, one that was not so bad against the Oakland Athletics and one where he just couldn't get anything to work against the Arizona Diamondbacks. So the Braves just kind of sat down and said, look, we want you to go back to AAA and get some work done. And for Soroka's part, he's been at this for a while. He's, I'm sure, had to wrap his head around the work he needs to do to get himself where he needs to get, and he went down to AAA Gwinnett, and he put together three good starts and got called to the major leagues again for Atlanta to make his first home start, first time back on the Truist Park mound, since 2020 when he ruptured his Achilles for the first of two times, and he picked up his first win since September the 19th of 2019. Let's hear a little bit from Mike Soroka talking about, or Michael Soroka as we now know him, talking about what this start meant to him, what it was like to be back on the Truist Park mound, and really you know, where he goes from here. Here's Michael Soroka. My goal was to continue just letting it fly. I think that's the one thing I, I found when I went back down. and you know, I, I found it at some points earlier this year, but it was kind of spotty, and Went down with a bit of a fire uh, lit underneath me and just started kind of letting it fly. So early on, did it really well. I think we actually kind of got away from it uh, in the third and then went back to it. So, yeah, I made the adjustment we needed to make to 
get six today and, and obviously watch some fireworks uh, early on was nice too. Letting it fly, like you mentioned, applying that, is that just kind of a mindset thing? Yeah, I mean, you know, you forget when you're, you come up and you're real young and I mean, you know what you're doing, but you don't exactly know how, right? Like it's, it's kind of one of those things where you've got some innocent confidence and then it was about working back into that confidence. And I think truly actually letting it go out of your hand was something that, you know, I'd done at times, but was kind of guiding the ball here and there. And it's where command just kind of wasn't clicking and, you know, still have some improvements there that I want to make. But I know it's going to come when I'm letting it go because then you can feel everything. It comes out cleaner. Uh, things are spinning harder and they tend to not see it as well. That's been the biggest thing since I started taking that mindset approach to it. What was it like being here, pitching in front of the fans at home for the first time since 2019? It was great. I think it had been built up so much in my mind, and I've always said to you guys that I try to not think about it, and I, I didn't because, you know, I didn't want it to become too big for me, right? I think understanding, you know, there's a lot of other people around there that have been waiting for this moment and try and give them, give them what they've been waiting for, right? You know, I thought back to, the, you know, why why and how I, I put up 2019 and, and what I did and it was being fearless and letting it go like I said and, and I think they appreciated that because every game I went out there and laid it all on the line and and showed that so I think that was my goal tonight and I think I did a good job of doing that for them so yeah hearing the cheers early when I was warming up and then uh, in, into the first inning and then at the end of my day um, it was pretty special and I'm very very lucky to have this fan base to come home to. Did you get any moment to soak it all in? Or? Yeah, I looked up quite a bit in uh, in warm up. You know, I made sure to kind of you know take it all in on my walk out. I think that's one thing injuries give you perspective on is that you know this is never guaranteed. And um, you know when you come up really really young, I think you look at a lot of the other careers like that, and you think you're going to be around for a long time, and then it kind of gets taken away from you for a bit. And uh, yeah, I think. You know, just appreciating what we have here in Atlanta, too. You know, it was tough for me in 21 not playing and, and seeing what this city was and what this team was. Uh, was kind of hard to, to soak that in, but, you know, tonight I think especially I did a good job of that, and it'll be a memory I have forever and very thankful for that. Brave starter Michael Soroka discussing his outing against the Miami Marlins and being able to pick up that victory and being back out on that mound in front of that crowd at home here in Atlanta for the first time. And nearly three seasons, well, really going back to 2019, it was longer than that as far as pitching in front of a crowd because remember in 2020, even though he made a handful of starts, there was nobody in the stands in the regular season there. So good to see him back. But I don't know that anybody could be more excited than the teammates of Michael Soroka certainly are in watching him come back from nearly three years removed from being able to just go out and do the thing that he loves doing. Austin Riley has played with him throughout the course of his minor league career. I've covered both of those guys since they were in A-ball. And I asked Austin after the start and in which Soroka picked up his win on Friday uh, just how special this moment was uh, for those guys to be out there and be playing behind Mike as he picked up his first win since 2019. All it does is build confidence. The guy is going to work harder than anybody. I've seen that and, and going to continue to see that. So I think it's more of like he had to, two Achilles. I mean, he pretty much started from scratch and had to revamp his whole throwing motion everything. I mean, it's just to see him take that next step was awesome. Uh, Velo was up. You know, I think he touched 96 quite a few times. And so, I mean, just to see him have the success was, was awesome. I mean, like I said, I played with him all throughout the minor leagues. It felt like old times. Uh, so it's good to have him back. 
Definitely good to have Michael Soroka back in this Braves rotation. But for Soroka, you really feel like they're looking to get him going for a good little run here, considering the success that he had in Gwinnett and obviously the success that he enjoyed on Friday against the Miami club to pick up that victory. Meanwhile, Colby Allard was a fellow first-round draft pick alongside Soroka way back in 2015, traded away to the Texas Rangers, spent some time in the American League, came back in another trade over the course of the winter and is back with Atlanta. On Wednesday, he got called up for a spot start that kind of surprised folks because they thought, hey, maybe it's going to be Michael Soroka, but no, they waited till Friday because they thought the Twins was a good matchup for Allard. And I would say four and two-thirds innings of shutout ball with eight strikeouts was a pretty good matchup for Colby Allard, and now he's going to get the opportunity to get another start as the Braves head out to Cleveland, as will uh, Soroka. It's going to be interesting, I think, to see what Allard is able to do with this. Just his third appearance at any level this season, and now he's going to get a couple of big league starts with one already under his belt to kind of help out the Braves on the way to the All-Star break, and that means that this shuffling in the rotation that had to happen was a couple of pieces going down. A.J. Smith-Shawver, Jared Schuster, both optioned, but We'll see how long Colby Allard's opportunity is going to be. Again, with Jared Schuster and with A.J. Smith-Shawver going back down to AAA Gwinnett, you know, makes you wonder when exactly are we going to see a couple of other familiar faces back in this rotation. Well, I got an update. Max Fried did throw to hitters this week. Everything went well. We'll see exactly what the timeline is once he does that a couple of more times. But great to see Max Fried back on the mound and facing live hitters for the first time since being shut down a month before last. Kyle Wright, meanwhile, he is still throwing, but has not reached that point of getting on the mound, doing those bullpen sessions, and, of course, facing hitters. His return probably sometime in August. While for Freed, we should see him, if all goes well, hopefully by the end of the month before the trade deadline. The Braves are certainly like to have him back in the saddle, both those guys, uh, for the stretch drive. Looking ahead for the Braves, they will head to Cleveland to face the Guardians in a three-game series coming up this week. They'll be off on Thursday in the final series of the first half. Will happen after that. It's the Tampa Bay Rays. The road trip, six games, two cities, going to close things out for Atlanta in the first half. The Braves, though, an incredible month of June, rolling it on into July, best record in baseball, a franchise record, eight All-Stars. We've got all kinds of great stuff to talk about on this week's edition of From the Diamond. And as always, I appreciate you guys tuning in and riding along with me. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Just search for From the Diamond. And along social media, you can find me at Grant McCauley. Got all the great links and all that good stuff for you at FromTheDiamond.com. My thanks again to Casey Stern for helping me out with a little bit of that Mets talk. And my thanks to Eric Slaughter for helping me out here in the studio for this edition of From the Diamond. Look forward to chatting with all of you again soon. We'll catch you next Sunday right here. And until then, so long from Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.